Thank you for listening to this week's message from North Shore Christian Church. For more information about North Shore, please visit northshorechristian.org. Good morning. North Shore here and online. Welcome, welcome to the last day. Second to the last day of July, right? I can't believe, how many of you feel like this summer flew by? What in the world, right? I'm knocking on the door to August right now, and uh, what in the world, right? TJ told me the other day his friends are going back to Wazoo, what, in like a week? I mean, how's that even possible, right? But we have a lot of living to do right now, don't we? We have August, and while I'm talking about August, which I'm not going to talk about anymore, how about if our ushers came forward with Bibles? And if you need a Bible, because we are going to get into the Word today, please raise your hand and they'll be happy to give that to you. Today we're going to talk about a tale of two women. Radical love and how they express that. As you know, we've been in the series for the summer, Radical Love. And last week, I love how Pat talked about radical love for one another and how we need to let radical love in our own lives transcend the offenses that happen to us because they do, don't they? And how we need to view others with God-given dignity as creations in God's image. So I love his message last week. I've loved being in this series. And uh, today I get a chance to talk to you guys about radical love and how that's expressed here. What is love? I love ice cream, right? I, I love my wife. I, I love my dog. I love gummy bears, right? And the list goes on, right? Are, are these the same thing? I don't think so, right? Some say love, lo- love will keep us together, right? Some say love stinks. People go to the, if you're in the 80s music scene, you'll, you'll get that one. People go to the ends of the earth for love, don't they? And people have fought many battles over their loves and their lovers. The power of love. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Today we're going to look at two stories. How two different women express their radical love for Jesus. And what motivated them to do that. These stories are told in all four Gospels. But we're going to talk today and we're going to look at specifically two different examples. One is in Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, which we're going to turn to first. And then we're going to look at John 12, 1 through 8. For both of these women, these, these stories are kairos moments in their journey with Jesus. Kairos. It's an interesting term, isn't it? One is rescued from her past. The other is secured in her future. Kairos. It's how we define time. In the Greek, there's two words for time. One is chronos, chronometer, watch, clock. It's just the simple passage of time that we keep track of, right? But kairos, kairos is a defining moment in time. A defining moment that happens that changes everything. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. How many know what I'm talking about? 
right? That was Neil Armstrong on July 20th, 1969, when he stepped out of the moon lander and, and stuck his foot, his footprint forever shown in the moon dust, right? And we celebrated that. I was four years old, but I have heard that, that sentence over and over and over again, right? Why? Because a huge accomplishment, right? For the first time ever, humanity stepped on another celestial body, the moon, right? And we won the race, if you remember, the space race with Russia. It was a huge crowning moment, a defining moment for us. The fall of Rome, many of us weren't around for that, but that was a defining moment. The fall of the Soviet Union, if you remember, changed the lives of hundreds of millions of people and the geography in which they lived and who they were um, controlled by, right? These were defining moments. These were kairos moments in our history as a world. And of course, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the eternal destiny and the lives of billions of people, right? The whole world. This is another huge Kairos moment. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. And God, I pray that you would remind us, that you would show us um, once again the Kairos moments, the defining moments in our lives when we made you our Savior and when we made you our Lord. Or maybe that's, that's still yet to come. But God, show us in your word just the incredible, radical love that these two women showed Jesus and what that meant for them and, and how that changed their lives. And Jesus, give us the same heart that they had. Give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear what it is that you want us to know. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So how did these women experience Jesus? And what motivated their love and their devotion? Let's look at that first story in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her, hair, with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered, answering to him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my hair with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. My friends, I love that story. But who is the sinful woman? We're not given her She's not given her name here in this story. We don't know who she is specifically, but we certainly know what she does for Jesus in this time, in this story. How did the sinful woman experience Jesus? And what motivated her radical love and devotion? What was her Kairos moment that changed her life? It was exactly what we just read about. The incredible, extravagant, radical love that she shows Jesus. She approached Jesus, it says at the end there, in faith as her Savior. As her Savior. And he forgives her. And he rescues her. He, he releases her from her past. Right? And that's what I love about John eight thirty six. It says, who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? My friends, her response was radical. First of all, she took a great risk by entering this open courtyard. In those days, they didn't have as many doors and locks and gates and everything that we have today, right? So there is a way that you can just wander in and wander out of a space like this. Now, granted, they're in an intimate dinner setting. They're not at chairs. They're reclining at tables and they're having a meal. But she enters this space. She interrupts this gathering, right, by kneeling at the feet of Jesus. And she rubs expensive ointment into his dirty feet. My friends, this is an incredible act. In those days, there was no closed-toed shoes, right? You wore sandals and your feet were extremely dirty. People did not touch your feet. But she rubbed expensive ointment into his dirty feet. And with her tears mingling with this ointment, she wipes them dry with her hair. And she's let this down, right, in a public setting. That's another thing you might not know about. This is a social no-no. A woman does not let her hair down in public, particularly a Jewish woman. It's considered immodest, even immoral. My friends, this woman, who we don't know her name, is the very embodiment of humility and servanthood. And the word used for this act of incredible kindness that she shows Jesus is diakonio. It's the Greek verb for the action of serving. It's used earlier on in Luke, particularly um, serving at the table. But later on in Luke, it's the same word that's used for expressing the work of the disciples. And later on in Acts, the work of the apostles. Diakonio, 
This is how she's expressing her radical love to Jesus. But her expression, her great expression of radical love and devotion did not come without opposition, did it? The host of the dinner party, Simon a Pharisee. He scorns the intrusion of this sinful woman, although his thoughts are known only to him and to God. Jesus, right? Jesus knows what he's thinking. He's witness to this unexpressed annoyance at this woman's uninvited overtures. And Jesus tells the story, right, of two people who had been forgiven debts, a debt of 50 denarii and 500 denarii, about a two-month person's wage and 20 months, almost two years of a person's wage are forgiven. Who loves much? The person who is forgiven much. Luke 7, says, Then turning toward the woman, he says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet. My feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he was forgiven, little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You go in peace. It's interesting. Jesus points out uh, to his host the kindness and the hospitality he could have given his guest, but this woman gave freely, right? Now, I'm not sure if you can relate specifically to this woman's past, but certainly some of us come from a difficult and destructive lifestyle, potentially, right? Some background maybe that you're not proud of, and, and yet Jesus redeemed you. Jesus, amen? Jesus, Jesus restored you. Jesus forgave you. What was it like? What was it like for you to, to understand that you're truly forgiven like this woman was and that Jesus had rescued and released you from your past? What was that like? Can you remember? Can you remember that Kairos moment, that defining moment when you experienced his love and his forgiveness for the first time? Can you remember that? You know, for me, I, the end of my sophomore year in high school, I had an opportunity to get involved with this Christian group called uh, Young Life. Anyone familiar with that? Yeah, high school Christian organization. And I'd grown up in the church, but these people were nothing like I was accustomed to. In fact, I'd go to their meetings and some guy would stand up there and he'd tell a Bible story and he's wearing like a t-shirt and, you know, jeans with paint all over him and bare feet, Right? I wasn't accustomed to this. I came from a much different church background. And, and yet there was something intriguing about those stories about Jesus. And then they invited me to this, this camp called Malibu. Anybody heard of Malibu? And I, went, and I went. And at the end of the week, you guys, I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. And I responded. And I remember just sitting there all by myself because I kind of gave you time to get away. And I just saw it, the incredible, if you've been to Malibu, it's 
unbelievably beautiful. And I just saw all that. It seemed like I was looking at the world in color for the first time. It was crazy. Seal pops its head up, an eagle flies overhead, the sun's setting on the mountains, the you know, rocks are coming straight out of the, the um, ocean. It was unbelievable. And I just said, Jesus, forgive me. Come into my life. If you can make something this incredible, then I know you can do something in my life. It was a very, very simple prayer. And then I went home. And here's the problem, my friends. I, I feel like I had changed. God had come into my life. I was a different person. But I was also the high school drug dealer. And so I had all this dope and my friends were depending on me. And I had pot plants growing in, in an undisclosed location near my parents' property. And I went and I visited those, and guess what? God, by his grace, destroyed them. They were gone. They were dead after a week with no water, right? Thank you, Jesus. And then he, he put in my heart that I needed to gather up my two pounds of pot that I had and my, um, my, my drug paraphernalia, my pipes and my bongs and all that stuff, and, and I put it into an ammo can, and then I put it into a black plastic bag, and I borrowed a uh, rowboat, and I rowed it out into the middle of Puget Sound. And I just dropped it over the side. I know that's not as environmentally friendly as it should be, but <laughs> I wasn't thinking of that at the time. And as I watched this disappear literally in the depths of the sea, I was overwhelmed by God's love for me, by his forgiveness, by his grace and his mercy and his kindness. It was a kairos. It was a defining moment for me, realizing that God was my savior and I never went back to that stuff. His great love for us compels us to express our love, right? And our devotion and our faith and our trust in him as our savior. I love these two passages in Ephesians, starting in uh, chapter two, verse four and five. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Amen? And then 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. My friends, this woman is dead in her sins. Yet she encounters Jesus, whose radical love and great mercy forgives her of her sins, which are many. And she finds him. She showers him with love and gratitude beyond measure, knowing that by faith she has been released from the bondage of her past. He is her savior. There's no doubt. And that leads us to our second story. John chapter 12. Verses 1 through 8. And this is a story of another woman. This time we have her name. And her name is Mary. 
This is not the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary Magdalene. You guys, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. <laughs> Just so you know, and this is another one. But we're going to read about her. 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Sound familiar? The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So my friends, a different story. How did Mary experience Jesus and what motivated her radical love and devotion? And I think to understand uh, some of the implications from this story we just read, a little bit of context would be helpful. If you've read John 11, the chapter just prior to this, it describes three siblings, right? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're all living in Bethany, and they're very good friends with Jesus. And then Lazarus falls ill, and he dies. Now, Mary and Martha had asked that he come quickly and heal their brother, but he doesn't. In fact, he doesn't come back to see his friend until after he's been dead for four days, right? They're like, don't even go near that grave. It stinks. But he has a very important conversation with Martha where he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. My friends, the point was not for Jesus to prevent Lazarus from dying. But to show the world, or at least these witnesses in Bethany, that he had the power over life and death. And could bring his dear back, his dear friend, back to life. Even though he'd spent four days in the grave already. Right? Mary had just witnessed this. The miraculous resurrection of her own dear brother. And now this story occurring about a week, actually, before the time that Jesus himself would be crucified on the cross and raised from the dead. They're having a dinner party, right? With Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and at least one of the disciples we know of, Judas Iscariot. And Mary begins to anoint Jesus' feet with a pound of pure nard. It's, it's from um, India. It's a perfume. It's extremely expensive. In fact, what she had there Judas put a price on it because he knows what things are worth, right? 300 denarii. My friends, this is the equivalence of a year's wage. Now, I don't know how much you make in this room, but you do. 
Think about that. What would it take for you to give a year's worth of your wage to a person like this? On his feet. Anointing his dirty feet. Think about that. And think about this. Mary and Martha, their sisters, living in a small town. Martha has just heard Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Inevitably, Mary would have heard this from her sister. She had just witnessed her brother being raised by the one who they now knew as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And this perfume that she had, it was often stored. It was kept as someone's savings, right? It was something small you could carry or put somewhere safe. It was used to barter and trade with. Mary had the equivalent of an entire year's wage or salary saved up. And she gave it all to Jesus. Why? One could ascertain from this story that she knew that her future security was no longer going to be held by what she held in her hand, what she'd saved up, what she was counting on for her future. Her future was now in the hands of the one who had the power over life and death, my friends. Her eternity was now sealed by the one whom she was anointing with such extravagance that she was criticized by Judas Iscariot, the one who's about to betray Jesus. Jesus was her friend. And he was her savior. And now she recognized him as her Lord. What was her Kairos moment that changed her life? <laughs> it was exactly what we just read about, right? That moment she's with Jesus, she anoints him extravagantly, and by faith she expressed her radical love for Jesus as her Lord. My friends, she was all in with him. I hope you don't miss that point. She's all in with him. She trusted him with her future. She's fully committed her resources to anoint him like a king. Why? Because he is the king of kings. Right? So what does it mean to say Jesus Christ is Lord? S.M. Swimmer said, unless Jesus is Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. And that is the challenge, I think, for all of us, right? For Jesus to be Lord of our whole life, not just our Sunday. Jesus wants to be the Lord of your future, your hopes, your dreams, your marriage, your finances, even your kids, right? And we know the Lord is our rock. He's our refuge. He's our fortress. He's our shepherd. He's our redeemer. He's our king. He is the Lord of all. We know this, right? And he's asking us to be all in. It may be different for some of us than for others of us. But God says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May there be no doubt. Right? And in Luke 6.46, it says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. Everything we build depends on him as the foundation, right? And Paul recognizes this as well in Romans 14, 8 through 9. It says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Amen. Can you remember? Can you remember a Kairos moment or a defining moment in your life when you decided to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Again, for me, I remember Sam and I had met, um, I think in 1989, and we were students at the UW, and we had the profound opportunity to hear from Dr. Bill Bright, who is the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. He and his wife, Fonette, would come to the UW periodically because their son Bradley was on staff there with his daughter-in-law and his their grandson. So they would come and visit. And so we had the opportunity to hear from this amazing man of faith. And I remember not, I don't remember much about his whole message, but I remember the thing that he said at the end. My friends, it was a call to action. He said, would you please stand if you want to come help change the world? <laughs> you know what I did? I stood. I stood up. And I had no idea what that meant. Right? Come help change the world. That can't be a more ambiguous call to action, can it? But there was something about that. I realized there's something here that God wants me to do that's way bigger than me. Right? Or my life. But I wanted to be all in. And I wanted to give it all to him. And that was a, a moment of lordship in my life. Right? where Jesus wasn't just my Savior, although he was, but he became my Lord. And this one act of standing up as a, as a public expression of my yet very limited understanding, but wanting Jesus to be Lord of my life, well, it, it led me to quit my job at Nordstrom. It was a lucrative career. I was enjoying it there. It was a good job. But the hardest part of that was telling my father, not a believer. I remember I asked him to come outside and we, we sat on the deck at my parents' house on Vashon Island. And I said, hey, uh, dad, um, so I'm going to leave my job at Nordstrom and I'm going to go work with uh, college students and tell them about Jesus and, um, and raise our own salary for that. <laughs> huh? That didn't, didn't really go that well, Right? And I dreaded that. Why? Because the only thing I wanted in life was to please my own father. And I knew that wasn't going to do it. 
but I had a heavenly father that I needed to please more. And that was, again, a point of demarcation where I had a trust that God had something for us that was way beyond what I could possibly imagine, and he did. And so for the next year and a half, we raised our salary. We talked or met with over 700 people, most of which I didn't know, (laughs) several churches, but God provided for us to go and do this full time. I traveled to Alaska, Montana, Idaho, parts of Washington. Why? Because college students needed to know Jesus as her savior. And now God has us going to Africa and India and possibly the Middle East for the sake of the gospel. And sometimes I don't want to go. I'm just being honest. And, and yet I go. And God always shows up. And he always does amazing things. And, and I love it. And it's incredible. And I wish I could take every single one of you with me. Um, can you remember a Kairos moment? when you decided to make Lord Jesus the Lord of your life? What circumstances surrounded that? How, how has your love and your faith and your trust grown because of what you've done there, because of that decision? I want to end here with some next steps just for us to consider. Over the next week, how do people, how do people know that you love Jesus? How do people know? that you love Jesus? Have they experienced him through you? Do they see how, by how you treat them, how you love them? I've had to think a lot about that even in my own life, but I thought I'd throw that question out. And then secondly, what would it look like for you to be all in? For all of us, it's different, isn't it? For some of us, it's just growing in our, in our faith. It's trusting him with, with things that we haven't trusted him with before, those really hard things that we've had to try to control ourselves, but we realize that's not working. Maybe it's having a deeper commitment. Or maybe it's seeing people like Jesus sees them. And then we have to do something about that.